travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 39, Climbing Nepal's Himalayas with Billy Beerling. Uh, scaling mountains is a pursuit that attracts some of the world's most adventurous people, and attempting to climb the world's tallest mountains within the Himalayas is an entirely other sport. Today, we're going to chat with Billy Beerling, a German who has spent much of her life living, working, and climbing in Nepal, among other Himalayan nations, about her passion for tackling some of the world's tallest and toughest peaks, including Mount Everest, which she has successfully summited. So this is Scott Coates recording from Hui Hin, Thailand, and with me, as always, is my trusty co-host, Trevor. Hey, Scott. I'm here in Bangkok, just up the coast from you. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I was sitting by the pool reading, going to enjoy a sundown run, and I know you and your girlfriend are heading down here soon. It's uh, it's as much as I love Bangkok, it's good to get out of the city, but we're a long way. I'm at sea level, and you are about two meters <laughs> above sea level, and we're going to talk about uh, high altitude stuff today, yeah? Yeah, seriously, high altitude stuff. You know, I was thinking about it a little bit because, you know, we're talking in meters here nowadays and, and it's tricky for me to convert. But, you know, Billy, it, her big thing is, is climbing peaks that are 8,000 meters. And, and Mount Everest, I believe, <laughs> yeah. is, is like 20 some thousand feet. Um, now, before moving to Thailand, I used to really enjoy hiking and, and camping and, and backcountry skiing um, a lot in California and New Zealand. And most of those peaks that I was up on were like 10, 12,000 feet, which is about half the, the height that she's talking about. Um, right. But, you know, yeah. I always found something spiritual about sitting on top of some majestic peak and looking out over the mountains. Uh, so while I've never been to Nepal or the Himalayas, I think I understand why people are so attracted to it and why Buddhists in Tibet and Nepal consider their mountains sacred places. Yeah, I've never formally attempted outdoor climbing. I mean, I've I've been over 5,000 meters for extended periods, cycling and whatnot. I've tried indoor climbing. And I, I've just never, I always feel jittery. It's just obviously climbing is, is not for me, but but there is something kind of addictive about being high up and in these really remote areas with the mountain views. Like, you know, I, I, I've definitely called back to it. And at some point in my life, I'm going to do kind of like a mountain trek to a higher altitude again, because it, it really is infectious stuff. It, it's pretty neat. But before we uh, get too further down this road, let's uh, thank our sponsor, and that is Himalayan Trails. They are uh, an outfitter in Nepal, and they're a Nepali business with an international team run by Claire and Mads. Claire is Australian, Mads is uh, Danish, and they have about 15 years experience each in that country and a great, great local team. I've worked personally with them for many years and basically from a, a soft cultural you know family holiday to a lowlands trek to mountain biking which they've kind of pioneered in many respects they're they're a really great operator and they don't compromise quality if there is if you want something that they don't do they'll they'll uh, very nicely say, you know, this isn't our thing and connect you. But if you're going to Nepal or even Tibet or Bhutan, uh, they're great, great operators. So thanks so much to them for sponsoring the episode. Yeah, you know, and I think like if, if I were to go and do this, I'd probably want to go with someone like that. You know, when I was in my 20s and I was younger and mm. and 
you know, I mean, any sort of mountaineering, even, you know, up in Lake Tahoe, where we used to do some backcountry skiing, um, you want to do like, you know, a full day's hike and then you camp on top of a mountain and it's still a little bit sketchy. You know, some storms can blow in uh, when you're skiing out, uh, you can get lost. Um, so I definitely appreciate um, the, the need for having some sort of expertise when you're going to, to do something kind of extreme like, like Billy does. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on that note, the tracks I've done, which most of them have been low altitude ones, is just having teams that are skilled A in setting up and tearing down camp and, and carrying all, all everybody's gear without, you know, getting sick or, or knowing their limits and a great cook. Like that keeps even, you know, these non-physically arduous things happening, yeah? Yeah, you know, like food for sure. I can imagine like having a cook is that's such a, a perk, I would think, you know, rather than just bringing a little Coleman camp stove and, and making some simple spaghetti or something like that, uh, especially if it's going to yeah. take a while, if you're going to be out there for a while. But, uh, you know, what, what Billy's doing is pretty extreme stuff. I know that uh, beforehand we were talking about Into Thin Air. I think you read that book, haven't you? Yeah, I, I, I definitely read it and really got into it at a point. Yeah, and you know, I saw the IMAX film, which was the IMAX Everest film, which was filmed on the same expedition yeah. that, that Krakauer wrote that book. Right, right. And, uh, you know, doing this kind of extreme stuff, like, I think you need to have some sort of serious drive to do that, to, to really push yourself. You know, like my dad and his friends uh, who do Ironman races. Like, I like backcountry skiing. I like to climb. I like the, this physical exertion of it, but, but I'm doing it so that I can ski at the end of it. You know, I'd <laughs> yeah. almost be just as happy. I'd almost be just as happy taking the helicopter up there sure. and skiing down I, yeah. I think real serious mountain climbing is is more about like pushing yourself to your limits yeah yeah and that's i guess when into thin air came out i, I got really into it not because i'm a climber but i loved just the the sheer physical feat of it all the planning that goes into those exhibitions or uh, expeditions and then i i became engrossed i think by how the disaster unfolded largely due to people not following self-imposed rules and i was operating you know tours that aren't risky at that point but i always thought of these like turnaround times and basic things that they knew that they broke and and then i i got into you know reading other books like annapurna by maurice herzog which is documents the first eight thousand meter ascent which is fascinating and the climb by anatoly Bukharev and Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. And, and while I'm not a climber and have no intention to do it, I just, yeah, all the technicalities and pushing the human spirit is, is really fascinating stuff. Yeah, you know, and, and that's a good point. And, and as we get here to our guest, it's not just, oh, here's a mountain, you can climb it. It's the stories of, of the people who, who mm. want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, let's introduce our guest today. It's Billy Beerling. And yep. she climbs more or less full time, although um, she describes it as a hobby or a passion. It's not really an yeah. occupation for her. Right. Um, but she is a journalist and she also is the, the legendary Miss Holly's assistant in Kathmandu, where she helps officially document climbing ascents. She has climbed four of the world's 8,000 meter peaks, Mount Everest, Lhotse, and Manaslu twice. And I hope I pronounced that last one correctly, but uh, she, she's done that peak. Is it Makalu? Ma- Manaslu? I don't know. She'll explain Makalu, it to us. Uh, Makalu. Once and Manaslu twice, yeah. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. so that's the four peaks, and I know that she's done Everest and Lhotse with oxygen, but she did Makalu twice. Mm. Right, once with oxygen and once without. Anyway, she'll explain this all in a minute. She's the first German woman to reach the top of Manaslu, which is the eighth highest mountain in the world. And she's hmm. also the first German woman to climb Lotse, which is the fourth highest wow. mountain on the planet. So uh, let's introduce her here. And thank you very much for joining us today, Billy. All right. 
I was lucky enough to meet you quite a number of years ago in Kathmandu, Billy, when you were training for your first attempt at Everest. Uh, first off, congratulations. I know you finally summited. And where are you right now? Well, at this very moment, I'm in Bern, Switzerland, um, okay. where I work for Swiss Humanitarian Aid, mostly mm. over the winters when I don't go climbing in the Himalaya, to earn some okay. money to finance my next expedition. Finance your habit. Exactly. And it's an expensive <laughs> habit, I can tell you. I'm sure it is. And yeah. you're German originally, is that right? I am German, but I lived in the UK for 12 years. That's where I learned my fine English. <laughs> and Great. and then I've lived abroad, you know, I lived in Nepal and Pakistan and Jerusalem. And, you know, so hmm. now it's like, a, I suppose, like, you know, a mixture of, you know, different accents. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I would say it's probably more of a passion than, than a hobby, right? So when did you first develop an interest or a passion in climbing and, and how did that interest develop? Mm. It's actually quite interesting because I come from a Bavarian Alpine village and I had no interest in mountains. Everybody thinks, oh, Billy is from Bavaria. So, of course, she grew up in the mountains. And of course I did, and I went skiing, but I hated walking, I hated hiking. My parents would take <laughs> me up. God, every Sunday I'd have to hike up a mountain. And when you're 16, you have other things to do than hike up a mountain. It was so boring. And then I moved to the UK, and I met my then boyfriend, who was a climber. And then I started rock climbing in the UK. So that was all very nice. We drove to the crag, and we did the climbing. And then all of a sudden, you know, we did some more serious stuff and I had to walk to the crag. And I thought, oh, God, that's a bit boring. Um, and then in 1998, um, Mike, my then boyfriend, had organized a big sort of trip to Nepal. And it was like a three-month trip. It involved like three 6,000-meter peaks. It involved a lot of trekking. And, you know, even though I wasn't that interested in mountaineering, I thought, oh, of course I'll come along. It sounded like an interesting adventure. And um, and I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. And, you know, I mean, in hindsight, I mean, I always look back and I say, wow, you know, it's been a really good experience and it was fantastic. I suppose if you ask Mike, you know, he'd probably say, oh, my God, Billy was moaning all the time. Because, you know, <laughs> this is how I first learned how to walk on crampons. And so I climbed six, um, no, three 6,000 meter peaks during that time. And I just fell in love with Nepal. And then I'm cutting a long story short. I mean, and then uh, Mike and I split up and then it was 2004. I was actually living in Switzerland at the time. And um, I then wrote a letter to Miss Elizabeth Hawley. I don't know. Right. So, And that is the lady who's now 92 who collects all expeditions to Expedition Peaks. You know, we, we take data. And I basically thought, I want to live in Nepal. I wrote her a letter saying... Can I help you with your work? And then in 2004, I started working for her, met all these people who climbed Everest thinking, oh my God, if you can do it, I can. And then in 2009, I had to prove it and went up. Wow. <laughs> so, and well, that's that's quite a story. You've just covered a few of our questions there. What were sort of, for you, some of the, the, the peaks that really got you started? You mentioned you climbed a few 6,000 meters. Uh, what are sort of those first ones that kind of spurred you on your way? Okay, well, the first one I climbed was actually a mountain called Pachamo, which is a 6,000 meter. It's a trekking peak. So in Nepal, you know, they're classified by the government as a trekking peak or an expedition peak. But it doesn't mean only because they're a trekking peak that you can trek up it. It's just, you know, the way they sort of 
charge the fee and so on and so forth. So that was actually quite a tough one. And then the second one was a very popular six and a half thousand meter peak, which is called Mirror Peak. Which, ah, I've heard of that. Exactly. And a lot of people do. I mean, Mirror Peak is a big plot. And I actually didn't enjoy that. It was too boring. You know, it was a big plot. And, but it was six and a half thousand meters. And um, and then I suppose you you get hooked. And, and, and for me... It's, it's also, it's the altitude, what I find really amazing and interesting and, and just the, you know, how exhausted you get and how well you do at altitude. And then, of course, you know, you want to get higher. And, and yeah, I actually tried my first 8,000 meter peak in 2005. And there was Chouou, you may have heard about mm-hmm. that, the sixth mm-hmm. highest in the world. And that, again, is considered an easy 8,000-meter peak. But I always say there is no easy 8,000-meter peak. There is no easy mountain. You can get lost on a little hill in Wales, you know. Yeah. So um, so and then I, I failed there, or I, I didn't fail, I didn't get up, um, thinking, okay, 8,000 meters, not for me. I'm not strong enough. Uh, you know, just forget about it. And then the whole Everest question came up again, and... Um, when I met all these people and I just mentioned it to my friends in Kathmandu and it was actually quite amazing how people reacted. And then all of a sudden everybody said, Billy is going to climb Everest. And I said, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. I already just mentioned (laughs) it. And, but people got so excited for me that I was going to climb Everest that I thought I've got to do it now. So, I mean, I did it. Yeah. It sounds really odd, but I also did it for, 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 for the people around me, you know, which is really, you know, of course I did it for myself because we all do it. But but I thought it was quite interesting, the enthusiasm of people about it. Yeah, I think I observed some of that with some of the people uh, that I sort of knew in Kathmandu. Everyone was really, seemed more committed to it than you maybe were at that early stage. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's amazing, yeah. For me, you know, you might have kind of answered my next question, but I was wondering, like, there, there's lots of great big mountains in, in Europe and in Switzerland and in Germany. So I was just wondering what it was about Nepal and the Himalayas. Is it simply the altitude? Mm. Was it the in, the inspiration of this woman that you met? Uh, was it a collection of the things that, that led you to Nepal and the Himalayas? Um, I, I suppose it was initially mm. Nepal. You know, we all, and you've been to Nepal, you know, you go to Nepal and you think, wow, you know, the Nepalese people, they're so wonderful. And, you know, the whole, I don't know, you know, I mean, Nepal was my first Asian country I went to. So I was fascinated. And then, of course, I was fascinated by this woman who was just, you know, it was a hobby, you know, collecting all this information. And then it was also the mountaineering, but I suppose also more of the adventure, you know, I mean, hmm. I've just been to Pakistan for seven weeks and we didn't summit. And, you know, there's a lot of sitting around on, on such a long expedition. But I just love being at base camp, being in my little tent, waking up in the morning, looking at an amazing scenery. And, you know, there's a lot of hanging out, you know, at base camp. We're not climbing every day. I can give you a very uh, quick example. I mean, I've just been, as I said, on Broad Peak in Pakistan. The expedition was seven weeks I think I effectively climbed for nine days. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time, there's a lot of sitting around. So, you know, you have to learn, you know, to to deal with it. But for me, it's just being out there. And I tell you one thing, everything that seems so important in life on a, you know, everyday basis, is just so unimportant, you know. And, and, And you live with so little, you know. You have like three underpants and you have a couple of tops. And of course, you have a climbing gear. 
but what do you need? You know, I have all my belongings in my tent. And then, of course, hmm. I have, you know, I have a great team who cook for me because otherwise I'd starve. But, um, but yeah, it's, and, and I think that for me is actually the fascination about high altitude climbing. But being away for seven weeks, you know, away from, I mean, now we're not so much away from internet anymore because at Everest Base Camp we have 3G. But yeah, it's, I think I'm fascinated by that. And then also meeting people. You need a lot of quirky people there, I can tell you. <laughs> sure, sure. Mm. Now, we're obviously focused on climbing for this one, Billy, but just sort of also wondering, uh, I mean, you said you spent a lot of time sitting around and not actually climbing. So is Nepal and the Himalayas a destination that, you know, non-climbers can enjoy too? Or can can a trailing spouse go along and still enjoy the experience without having to actual scale big mountains? Absolutely. I always say we forget, you know, we always associate Nepal with climbing and mountaineering and trekking. But... I mean, you can do, I mean, as you know, you know, Matt's does the, you know, the bike rides, you know, there's so much biking going on, you can do hang gliding, you can go rafting, you can go, I mean, there's also a lot of culture, you know, you can visit Buddha's birthplace. So, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff to do in Nepal, but of course, trekking is, you know, is, is, is a big part and mountaineering. But now I tell you one thing about the, the you know, what I'm thinking more and more I go mountaineering and I spend, as I just said, seven to eight weeks in one place going up and down and up and down because, you know, on Everest or the big mountains, you acclimatize, you go to camp one, you come down, you rest, you go to camp two, you rest. Um, And what I, I don't know, I'm beginning to think about it more and more. When you go trekking, it's much more of an adventure, much more of an experience because you see different things every day. You meet different people. You go to villages. You, you know, I often, I sometimes come back from an expedition and then I talk to my friends and I hear what they've done during that time. And I just thought, oh, what have I done? I climbed one single mountain. So, hmm. yeah. So, but Nepal has a lot to offer. If it just sorted itself out politically, but that's a different topic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but but obviously, I mean, yeah, you say you just climbed one mountain, and there's so many more mountains to climb. Um, and and you started out maybe with not so much experience. But supposing someone wanted to go to Nepal or the Himalayas and and doesn't have a lot of experience, um, are there a lot of good opportunities for for introductory level climbers or people who want to maybe take it a little bit more seriously? And and maybe what would you recommend they they do to start out? Absolutely. I mean, I think I would. There is there are, there are a lot of people who want to climb Everest. So you know, I I meet people also through my job with Miss Hawley, who you know just they climb Kilimanjaro, which I don't know whether you climb Kilimanjaro. It's a walk. It's you know it's barely higher than Everest Base Camp. They climb mm-hmm. Kilimanjaro, and here they are now. They want to climb Everest. <laughs> no, I, you know, and there of course there are people who succeed because we get so much help from the Sherpas and, you know, the, the infrastructure and the, you know, the, the fixed ropes. But I mean, I think, you know, if you do want to go high, you know, start with a 6,000 meter peak, like I did, you know, go to Mirror Peak, you know, that gives you your first experience with, you know, wearing crampons or, you know, mm. or there's another, there's Island Peak. And then, you know, maybe again, if you're aiming to do an 8,000 meter peak, do a 7,000 meter peak first. There is, you know, there are actually quite a few interesting mountains now that have recently been opened by the Ministry of Tourism 
You know, one is Himlong, the other one is Putahion Chuli, and they're just above 7,000 meters. And I do think it is important to go on a little expedition before you go on a big, big expedition. Sure, because, it does. Yeah, just very quickly, because climbing such a mountain is, of course, it's a physical challenge, but is a huge mental challenge. You know, you sit at base camp, you miss your family, your children, your favorite food, your restaurant, your TV show, whatever. And you sit, and, and I think a lot of people are not very prepared for that. You know, they're prepared for climbing a mountain and being, you know, physically exerted. But the actual mental challenge, I think, is really underestimated. Wow. So you could, without too many skills, though, start with one of these trekking peaks, as you referred to them. Yeah, that's, that's doable? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, I didn't know how to, I mean, you still find people climbing Mount Everest who don't know how to use crampons. Come on. It's sad, but it's true. Yeah, and wow. I mean, you know, it's, it's something we all say. And I mean, there are few and far between, but they exist. Sure. So, you know, and, and, and to do, you know, something like Mirror Peak, I think if you have a, you know, an okay fitness level, um, if you have a good guide, I mean, anybody who is, you know, who, who knows how to, you know, who has, who's, who's, um, what do you call it, well-footed, you know, if you, mm -hmm. yeah, and I mean, can just give it a go. It's not technical, something like Mirror Peak, and you have a good, you know, experience about the altitude and, yeah. So, cool. I mean, I think it's a good package. Very good. Well, Billy, can you quickly tell us what are the 8,000 meter peaks you've summited and then maybe tell us a little bit about the whole Everest experience. I realize that it's not the only big one out there, but uh, what are the ones you've climbed and then a bit about Everest? Okay, so, you know, my first one to summit was Mount Everest in, mm -hmm. in 2009. And yeah. then the following year in 2010, I summited Mount Manaslu, which is the eighth highest. And I did that also with supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then the following year, I climbed Lotsi, which is the fourth highest in the world, which is right next to Everest. Mm -hmm. And then in the autumn of the same year, I went back to Manaslu and summited it again wow. without supplemental oxygen. Wow. And then I summited Mount Makalu, which probably was the most challenging mountain I climbed. Huh. It was uh, last year. Well, in 2014, and that's the fifth highest. Wow. And I, I tried Choroyu, Shishapangma, and, uh, and Broad Peak, which is in Pakistan. Okay. So, you know, I tried eight 8,000-meter peaks, and I summited four. So, you know, 50-50. <laughs> and you came back alive from all of them, so that's good. <laughs> I came back alive, and, you know, I mean, I'm incredibly... I mean, one of my little claim to fame is with all these mountains, I didn't have to take any medication, any drugs, not even an aspirin, not even, you know, and that is, you know, if, if you go, I would say if you go to every space camp, the drug commission, you know, the doping commission would have a field day because, <laughs> you know, the amount of, of medication yeah. that is, you know. So, no, 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 I am, I'm not a great climber. I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these people who just hang in a wall. No, I can't. I call myself, I'm sort of a, you know, Reinhold Messner calls people like me a mountain tourist hmm. because I need the support of the Sherpas. I need somebody to tell me, hey, Billy, it's good weather today or the conditions are good. But I'm strong and I know what I do 
and I, I have stamina and I think that's what you need, you know, wow. and, and mental strength. Now, I, I have a curious question, maybe, and maybe it's silly. I don't know. I, I'm sure it's spectacularly beautiful up there and, and the views are stunning from uh, the top of a lot of these mountains. But I've done some work with National Geographic and I got an appreciation for, for bird watching and, and wildlife and stuff. And I'm wondering if do, do you see a lot of birds or any sort of interesting wildlife at some of these altitudes? You see very, f- <laughs> I mean, you, you do see very few. Uh, things because up there at five and a half thousand meters not a lot is still alive of course you see amazing birds you know you see eagles and you see um oh god I'm, I'm you know a lot of birds of prey i'm very bad with this stuff and also when you walk into every space camp you know lower down at about four thousand meters you know there's there's one bit of um you know there's one bit that's full of beautiful rhododendrons and if you go in april you know they're all in bloom and it's yeah it's very pretty you see a lot of blue sheep you know also lower down um and then i think if you look for it you know if you are into nature oh god i'm sure you could you know you could have a great time but high up you know that's the other thing you sit at base camp for seven weeks and it's so barren it's ice and rock and you don't notice how much you miss the greenery until you go back down and I always always the same I go back down and then all of a sudden it gets warmer hmm. and you know you start smelling because it's you don't smell anything up there and you start smelling the trees or the rhododendron and then you just in the greenery and you think oh my god how much have I missed that but you don't notice but it's it's quite I always find it quite significant Maybe you should bring like a small flowering potted plant to put in your tent so you can have this little connection with with smell that is probably not a bad idea, but I don't know how long it would survive, though. Mm. Yeah, it'd be yes. interesting. And, and no Yeti. You haven't seen... I haven't seen the Yeti yet, no, and I don't think I believe in no. the Yeti. <laughs> um, I haven't... And you know what? I yeah. have been on many expeditions, uh, you know, I mean, since 2009, most of the time, I've been on two expeditions a year, and I have been incredibly lucky. I have not had a situation where I just thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. Oh my God, this is really dangerous. You know, a little bit on Broad Peak this year because it was very avalanche prone and that's why we didn't summit and we came back down. But on the whole, I have never been stuck in bad weather. I have I have no idea why I'm so lucky. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, I, I mean, you, you've been very lucky. It sounds like a lot of your climbs have been textbook and you've played it safe or ensured that you've had safe experiences. Can you kind of pick one of your most amazing climbing experiences and share a little bit about it I with us? I think the most, oh God, it's, it's really tough. It's a difficult one. Okay, my most amazing climbing experience was probably Lotse. So Lotse, as I said, it's the fourth highest. It's right mm-hmm. next to Everest. And it used to be considered a very tough mountain. But again, since the Sherpas have fixed the ropes, you know, when you fix a mountain, when you have fixed ropes, it loses a lot of its technical difficulties. Because, of course, we don't have to put in the ice screws and there's a fixed rope and we clip in, so we're safe. And then you also have an ascender where at the really, you know, I try and climb everything with my hands and whatever. But sometimes if it's really steep, you can use this ascender. So you slide it up the rope and then it locks. So sometimes, and I have to admit, you have to pull yourself up a little bit. Um, but I think hmm. um, when I was on Everest, I was fighting 
the oxygen mask. I hated it. I hated it. And it made me, oh, God, I felt like as if, I, if I were suffocating. But of course, you know, Everest is out of my league to climb without supplemental oxygen. Only very few people have done so. So when I was on Lhotse, I just thought, right, the oxygen is my friend. And I put on the oxygen mask and I was just flying up. I, mean, I felt so strong. And so, you know, I just, I stopped fighting that mask in front of my face, which I still don't like. And I'd rather summit a mountain without uh, the oxygen mask. But yeah, and the Lhotse Kulua is just an amazing place where at one point you can, if you, you know, if you spread out your arms, you can touch both sides. So yeah, very beautiful. And you have an amazing view of Mount Everest over there. So, um, so yeah, I think Lhotse. And very quickly, you know, my most amazing moment on Mount Everest was not on the summit. It was when I was just about 20 meters below the summit. And, you know, I, I, I had just sort of got over the Hillary step. And I should have known better. I thought I was probably at least another two hours from there. And I looked up and I saw the people on the summit and I heard the voices of my friends who were faster than me. And I just thought, oh my God, now I've made it. Something has to go really, really wrong if I don't make it now. And at that moment, a huge burden fell off my shoulders because I had so many people who were so excited about me climbing Mount Everest that I said, oh my God, I can't disappoint them, you know, and, and not that they put pressure on me, but they were so excited. So that was my most amazing moment on Mount Everest. Hmm. So. All right. So if somebody wants to go to Nepal or go to the Himalayas and, and start doing some trekking, like I asked before, um, and, and you said you've had good luck with, with safety and whatnot, but if someone wants to hire like a company to, to take them to do some sort of trekking and stuff, what kind of things should they look for to find someone who's reputable and, and is responsible about doing this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, it depends what you want to do, of course. You know, if you just want to go trekking to every space camp, I mean, any odd company will do, you know. I mean, of course, you can be unlucky and get a guide who's, you know, who's difficult or who doesn't want to work. But, you know, every space camp, I mean, if you have a little bit of experience, you can actually walk there yourself, you know, with a with a guide, with a book, because there's so many tea houses, you know, there's hardly any chance that you get lost. Um, so, you know, it's a straightforward trek. And then if you want to do, you know, there are treks which you can't tea house, but you need, you know, it needs to be fully supported, meaning, you know, you need a cook team, you need a guide, you know, you have porters. And, um, and of course, if, if, if you look how many trekking agencies there are in Nepal, it's very difficult, you know, to say, right, this is a good trekking agency and, and they're doing a good job. But, I mean, I think for trekking... You know, as I said before, unless you have a dodgy guide, which hardly ever happens, it's never happened to me, you know, you're probably good with most trekking agencies. When it comes to climbing, there, you know, and again, if we go to 8,000 meters, you really, and there is a, there are a lot of dodgy agencies in Nepal, um, you know, you really want to make sure that the Sherpa who's going, who's going with you has been up on the mountain. You've got to make sure there is enough oxygen on the mountain. You've got to make sure they have enough tents, they have enough ropes. Um, you know, it's, it's over the past few, few years, it's, um, you know, a lot of Nepali companies have sort of, you know, have, have started to, 
to do business. And I'm not saying they're all bad. Of course, I mean, there's Asian Trekking, you know, a very well-established company. And I think Dawa Stevens does a great job. You know, he, you know, he's up there with the, with the Western um, uh, operators. But, but there are a lot of Nepali companies cut a lot of corners. And, you know, of course you can with a Nepali company. All of a sudden you can climb Everest for $25,000, whereas a Russell Bryce or Adventure Consultants, a big com- commercial operators, they charge seventy to 80000 And you to think, oh my God, of course I go with 25000 But we have seen on the mountain that these guys cut corners, they employ Sherpas who've never climbed Everest before, who are not climbing Sherpas, but only because they're Sherpas, they think, oh, you know, they can climb the mountain. And they send these Sherpas with clients who have very little experience up on the mountain, you know, and then you arrive at Camp 3 and there is no oxygen, there may not be a tent. So, I mean, you know, they're, they're awful stories so it's you know i think the best if you want to climb a big mountain you know just find out you know send me send me an email <laughs> no but you know just you will talk to people uh-huh. you know there there are good ones and there are okay. bad ones but there are you know i mean if you get a deal to climb mount everest for twenty five thousand dollars, you know i would be aware it's you know if you think that ten thousand or eleven thousand now already go to the Nepali government that leaves $14,000. And, you know, if I start telling you how much money is involved in getting A, B, and C to base camp and oxygen, you just think it's impossible to do it for that money. So, you know, and I think a lot of them, you know, they have, like, let's say they have 10 clients and they think, okay, we have 10 clients, five probably won't make it beyond camp three, so we only need oxygen for five people up on camp four. So if they're unlucky, all 10 make it. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Well, maybe a, a final question for you, Billy, is uh, what do you have planned for the coming season? I think climbing season is sort of April, May coming up, right? So what's uh, on deck for you? Absolutely. Um, yeah, tough question, because I think I've actually decided that I won't climb a big mountain this spring. Mm. Um, because part of the reason, because my last experience in Pakistan, which was, wonderful and I you know it hasn't got anything to do with not having been to the summit you know it's always a bonus for me I don't go to an 8,000 meter peak thinking I'm making it to the summit I'm actually always surprised when I make it to the summit so how did I get there um but it it just made me realize that I mentioned this before that I was like seven weeks sitting at base camp effectively climbing for nine days and spending, and I can tell you, 30,000 US dollars for that. Um, and, you know, I, as I say, I didn't come back thinking, oh my God, that was a really bad experience. Not at all. But I think for me this spring, I will, I am going back to Nepal on the 24th of March. I will work with Miss Hawley again, meaning I'm going to interview the teams mm-hmm. who, you know, who come and climb when they go and then they come back. So I will do my work for the Himalayan database. I will probably do a bike trip in Yunnan province in China hmm. for for 14 days with a friend of mine. Um, but, you know, for, for this spring, I have no plans. For the autumn, I may, well, probably most likely, I will go back to Chouou, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world, and which was my first 8,000-meter peak that I tried, and I thought, oh, I'm not very good at it. Um, because I have a little project, and I don't know whether I'll finish it or not. Um, I'll just tell you very quickly. 
As you know, there are 14 8,000 meter peaks on this planet. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people out there now who are aiming to climb all 14. Now, I always say, well, I'm only half as good and half as rich as a lot of these people who do them, so I'll do half. So, meaning that, um, you know, with four different 8,000 meter mm-hmm. peaks, I still have three to do. So, let's see. So, maybe I'll do one a year now. You know, I don't think I'll carry on trying to climb two 8,000 meter peaks a year because financially it's impossible. Um, for that, the Swiss humanitarian aid would have to pay me even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also time-wise, you know, there's so many things I want to do. You know, I want to go to Tajikistan and I have a friend in Addis Ababa and, you know, but but expedition just takes so much time out of your life that, you know, I think one a year is enough. Cool, cool. Well, it's it's fascinating what you've done and what you do, and uh, I certainly won't ever be running in that crowd, but very cool, and thanks so much for sharing your time with us, Billy. Uh, you're very welcome. Yeah, thanks, Billy, and uh, good luck with uh, your upcoming adventures, uh, whatever you decide to do. Yeah, that was uh, pretty fascinating, and, you know, happens with a lot of our interviews. I just want to ask more and more and more, and you know, I'm trying to picture being up on those huge summits and, and the waiting game element was like, I know they wait a lot, but I never really thought of it. She said that, you know, you, you can climb, but people don't really anticipate those seven weeks of sitting in super barren conditions. That is a lot of time to have to entertain your head. And I'm sure you can do yourself in mentally going through that. Yeah, you know, I, I found that kind of funny that mm. she had said when she first started trekking how she found it boring, but yeah. now she doesn't even find sitting around boring. Yeah. But she yeah. says, you know, she does enjoy the, the people that are also doing it, and uh, and I'm sure it's really beautiful up there. I, I hope she can bring a plant up there with her sometime, and, and, and hopefully it can grow. Yeah, yeah, you know, and... I've read it, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, a number of mountaineering books, but the thing about what she she's doing and climbers do is there's not just one part of it. Like, you know, you've got to have weather on your side. You've got to have luck on your side. You've got to have your own skills and hiking skills on your side. You got to keep your health in check. You got to keep your mind in check. Like there's just so many little pieces and a lot of them that you're not in control of that can go wrong that for any of these to come off successfully, it's really almost a miracle. Yeah, you know, and and I know that some famous climbers have died up on the peak, and uh, it it is interesting to hear her say about how there's kind of these new fly-by-night operations, and there's people trying to climb Everest that don't even know how to use crampons. So, you know, it is nice to talk to someone who is serious and passionate about it, and and although she has been very lucky, I don't know that it's necessarily all luck. Um, She seems to take it very seriously and and probably knows uh, a lot more about it than she gives herself credit for even. Yeah, there's obviously no substitute for experience and good planning. And, you know, on that note, I, I, I don't want to climb and I don't do good with long sheer drops, but I've always wanted to, for whatever reason, get to over 6,000 meters in height. And uh, I believe she recommended Mira Peak to me when I first met her many years ago. And talking about it again, I don't think I can throw the stake in the sand quite yet, but I think I would like to say maybe within the, in about two years that I'm going to get a group together and I'm going to try and make that happen and, and do a, what, what did she call them? A, a trekking peak to over 6,000 meters. Are you in? Yeah, you know, 
Because I think some of those peaks, like you're saying, you're, you're afraid of maybe like steep inclines or something. But I, I think a lot of those trails are probably, like she said, they're, they're treks. They're not like straight up and down. Uh, I know that like Everest and some of those other peaks have some extreme sections. But then she was talking about how there's little pulley systems that you can pull yourself up and, and you're clipped in all the time. So I think uh, you could probably find something that's kind of a mixture and, and it's relatively safe. Yeah, I think Mira Peak's about 15 days start to finish, and you don't actually have to have any climbing skills. You're walking, but you're roped off, and there's crampons. And I, I do remember her t- saying there's a few points where you're walking along ridges that drop, like, you know, thousands of feet. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I've got to make wow. it happen. i got to make it happen. <laughs> so I'm going to – couple yeah, years. Yeah, well, you know what? I think we should uh, put together – let's put together a Google Maps for this episode mm. of that area a little bit. Yeah, so, we Because, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly where all these peaks are, and it might be useful to, to our listeners. To, yeah. to take a look at a map. So, area. yeah, in the show notes, we'll put in a Google map with uh, showing all the faces that uh, she's climbed and some of these other trekking peaks. We'll also put the links to Billy's website, the Himalayan database that she does with Miss Holly, as well as links to some of the books we talked about. So, uh, Scott saying goodbye and thank you for listening from Hui Hin. And this is Trevor in Bangkok. Thank you, Billy, for being on the show. Thanks for Scott for joining me. And all of our guests will be back in, huh, listeners, two weeks. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia? 